Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. What you're about to hear is Class 1, Part 2 of a five-week class I taught at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 2007. The title of the class was The Buddhist Eightfold Path, A Way to Happiness. So, Class 1, Part 2 of a ten-part series of talks I gave at Loyola Marymount University. Testing, testing. These things are so handy. Okay. So now, the the most important part of the first night is the story of the Buddha. Uh, I mean, my story uh, may or may not be interesting, but the Buddha's story is very interesting. And, And what I liked about it, when I first heard it, was this, that he was a human being. Archaeological evidence that he actually existed... He had a wife. He had a child. You know, he was a son. I mean, he was like sort of a regular guy. And, and, and yet, through his own effort, his own perseverance, his own intuition, compassion, and wisdom, he ended up being a perfect human being. And he never got any more than that. He never became divine. He ended up being a perfect human being. And I, when I read that, I'm thinking, that is so cool, because I'm so far from divine, it's not funny. But at least I'm a human, and if I can be a bit more perfect than I am now, that's good. So he was born, uh, his father was uh, a king, his mother was a queen. His father wanted him to take over the family business and be the next king. It said he was kept secluded from the realities of life. He had dancing girls who played musical instruments. He had the best food, the finest clothing. You know, all those wonderful legendary stories that we hear about the Buddha. But one of the best stories for me was when he went into the streets of the city. Because he had been kept secluded from the realities of his life. He said one day to his charioteer, Chana... Take me into the streets of the city, Chana. I want to see where the laughter comes from and the crying comes from. And they got into the chariot and they went into the streets of the city. And this is when he saw four things that forever changed his life. And the first thing he saw was this really old guy. And he hadn't been allowed to be around really old people. So all the people he had been around were youthful and beautiful. And now there's this really old guy, his teeth had fallen out, no hair, bent over from years of walking. And the future Buddha, Siddhartha, looked at him and said, what's wrong with him? Why is he sick? What does he have? And Chana said, oh no, you're misinterpreting it. He's old. And everybody that's born has to get old. What a shock. Because here he was in his youth and strong and good looking. And yet, He was going to end up like that. And they continued through the streets of the city. And then they saw this really sick guy. And he said, wow, how old is he? Look at him. China said, oh, no, age is not his problem. He's sick. And everybody that's born has to get sick. So the future Buddha reflected on that. Young and healthy, 
But in just a matter of time, he too would look like that. He too would be over in pain because of sickness. Now they continued to the streets of the city and they saw this really dead guy just lying there. In the future, Buddha misinterpreted him as being sick. And China said, oh no, he's not sick, he's dead. And everybody that's born has to die. Now, to be honest with you, when I first read that story, I thought, well, it makes a good story. But I'm sure he did see old people and sick people and dead people. I'm sure they didn't prevent him from seeing those realities of life. And then, and then I thought about my life. And I thought about what my culture does for me. And, you know, if people get really old, we sort of put them in homes. So relatives and family and, and friends get to see them, but most of us don't get to see them. And if people get really sick, we try to put them in hospitals so they can get proper care, but it also takes them out of the public eye so they can be sick and miserable and we don't have to be bothered by that. And then when somebody dies, well, what's the first thing we do? I was watching the news years ago and there was this terrible car accident on the 405 freeway. And there were literally bodies in the middle of the freeway. And the first thing they did was cover the bodies so we couldn't see them. And then the, the ambulance came and they, you know, they have little windows and you can't see through there. And they put the covered body in the ambulance and then it went to the mortuary. And then friends and family bought him some new clothes and some new shoes, the dead guy. So he'd look presentable at his funeral. Covered him with flowers so he couldn't smell the decaying flesh. And actually, it looked like Uncle Max was just sleeping when he finally was shown. You know? I mean, so we sort of... Our culture pretty much does the same thing that the Buddhist parents did for him. We're prevented from seeing the realities of our life in the same way the future Buddha was. Now, the reason he left home many years later was not because he had seen those three visions, the old person, the sick person, the dead person, but it was the last vision that he saw that was the reason he left home. And that was the yogi, the mendicant, the spiritual person, who seemed relaxed, calm, unaffected, in the midst of all the suffering the Buddha had just seen. And he said to Chano, why is that guy so relaxed? Doesn't he see this? And Chano said, yes, but he's a religious person. He's seeking answers in a different way, in a different place than these people. And I think at that moment it planted a seed in the future Buddha's mind that the secular path was not going to do it for him. It was going to be the spiritual path. But it said he was 19 when he saw these four visions. And he had been married for three years. He was married at 16. So he needed to do one thing before he left his family to seek the answers to the suffering. He needed to have a child. And finally, at the age of 29, he had his first child. And he is, his first child was named Rahula. Rahula means fetter or impediment, which works really well in the story of the Buddha, but I doubt if any a new father would call their firstborn a fetter. And I doubt if the wife would let them call him a fetter. You know? But that aside, that very night his child was born, he left them in the care of his parents and went to the edge of the forest took off all his fine jewelry, threw it away. Took off his silken clothes, threw that away. Cut off all his hair, picked up these old rags that were lying next to his feet in the path he was standing on. Tied them together, covered his body. And for the next six years, he practiced asceticism, renunciation, and meditation. 
His goal was to find where suffering came from. Where did it start? And if he could figure out where it came from, could he figure out how to end it? That was his quest. That was his journey. And so for six years, after having been reborn 550 times before that as a bodhisattva, so this path that that I'm on is a very long path, the Buddha had been reborn at least 550 times, had come in contact with the Buddha in one of his past lives. And now finally, in his last rebirth as Siddhartha Gautama, the challenge was before him. Could he end all future rebirths? Could he end his suffering? And those six years were the most important six years because he succeeded. Now, people will ask, well, do we have to suffer that much? He had some pretty ascetic practices. He would have one meal a day. Sometimes for months, if not years, he wouldn't lie down at night to sleep. He would sleep in full lotus posture. The summer months, the full, the, the hottest part of the day, he'd build four fires, one in each of the four directions. He'd sit between those fires and just sweat and feel so uncomfortable. At one point in his ascetic practices, he didn't eat anything. He almost died. And Sujata, the milk maiden, saw him, fed him some milk rice, brought him back to life. Wow! He was looking deeply. What does this body and mind hold for me? Where does the suffering live? Where does it come from? And finally, after six years, on the full moon night of May, he succeeded. He became liberated. He became free. He ended his suffering. We call that nirvana. But not only did he end his suffering, he ended his karma, and he ended all future rebirths. Now, when I heard that story the first time, I'm thinking, you know, again, I don't think people really did that. I don't think people really could do that. And then I went to the sagely city of 10,000 Buddhists in Ukiah, California, a Chinese monastery at the old California State Mental Hospital. They bought it, turned it into a monastery. Is there much of a difference between spiritual energy and crazy energy? I Maybe not. You know what they do up there? The monks and nuns do not lie down at night to sleep. They sleep, all of them sleep sitting up in full lotus. Every one of them. They have one meal a day and it's vegetarian. That's it. And when I was up there, what I noticed is they were all really tired. They're not getting enough sleep. They should eat a little bit more too. They're really thin. But they're doing some of the same ascetic practices that the Buddha did. They are finding where their suffering comes from so they can deal with it and transcend it and end it for good. So some of this stuff is still going on today in 2007. It's just amazing. And there is a monk who will be speaking in Long Beach this weekend who did the most remarkable pilgrimage I have ever heard or read about. And I'm happy to call him a friend and an associate. His name is Venerable Hungshir, American fellow, going to school, used to be part of a, a duo. They played folk songs in college. He's, he's beginning to play again now. He's going to have his first Buddhist CD coming out next couple months, original Buddhist folk songs. 
most cruel. What he did, his remarkable journey, his remarkable pilgrimage is this. He went from downtown Los Angeles to Ukiah, California, over 800 miles with a fellow monk. They walked it. But not only did they walk it, they took three steps and they bowed a full prostration on the ground. And they got up and did three more steps and they bowed a full prostration on the ground. It took them two and a half years to make it from L.A. to Ukiah, California. And during that period of time, he was keeping a vow of silence. He didn't speak for six years. And I found one of the books about his journey at the Bodhi Tree Bookstore back in the 80s. Used bookstore. It was all sort of tore up. It was $2. And I said, no, this can't be. Could anybody do that? And I started to read the book. And it was amazing. This guy did it. And then years later, I got to meet him. And I can remember the first time I met him was at a monastic conference up in Shasta Abbey in Shasta, California. We had a a monastic conference, monks in the Buddhist tradition, Western Buddhist monks and nuns. And he came into the room and I just looked at him because I wanted to see what happens when you do that kind of pilgrimage. How does it change you? You know? And, and he's speaking this, this weekend. So I, I'll be glad to email you the information if, that, if I've inspired you to go out and, and hear he's going to be speaking some Dharma talks and doing some prayers. But he, he has changed. He has changed himself. He has transformed himself. His practice, it's amazing. And if you go to my website, you can download for free a PDF book of his journey and some articles on his journey, and you can see some pictures taken while he was on his pilgrimage, and you can even listen to some sound files of his new Buddhist folk music. Most cool. Venerable Hungshir. So this stuff happens. It's happening today. And there are Westerners, Americans, out there doing the exact same stuff the Buddha did. And they are achieving the same results. I guess that's the most important part. This path still works 2,500 years, 2,700 years later. It still works. Most cool. So, what did the Buddha discover? What did he say? What, why is it so important? Well, he gave his first talk to five ascetics he had been practicing with. They thought he got a little too soft, and they, and, and they abandoned him because he started to eat again. And, and yet, after the Buddha achieved nirvana, he sought them out. So there they were, imagine five ascetics, five yogis sitting down, and down the path walks the Buddha. And he must have been magnificent. He must have had an aura, a glow, a confidence, a selflessness about him. Because each and every one of them stood up and said, How are you? You've changed. What's your practice? Please sit down and tell us. We're eager to listen. And so the Buddha sat down and gave his first talk. The Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel talk. And he said to them, I have discovered four truths, four universal truths. The first truth I have discovered is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory because we're born. And because we're born, we have to get old. Because we're born, we have to get sick. And because we're born, we have to die. 
And if that's not bad enough, everything in this world that we love, cherish, and want to hold on to will be taken away from us. And the culprit is impermanence and change. And if that's not bad enough, there are people in this world we don't like and places in this world we don't want to be in, and we are around those people and in those places far too often. Life is ultimately unsatisfactory. He never said life is always unsatisfactory. There are moments of joy and happiness in our lives. But ultimately, our life will become unsatisfactory. That was the first truth. Think of him as the great physician. He's diagnosing the open wound of suffering. And now he speaks about the cause. The second truth is, I have discovered the cause of suffering. It is desire, it is craving, it is thirst. All we want to do every day in every way is to hold on to the good and push away the bad. And because we're born with original ignorance... We never get it right. We can't see clearly what we need to do to hold on to the good and push away the bad. So the second truth is it's our selfish desire that creates all the suffering for us. The third truth is nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering. Nirvana is the end of karma. Nirvana is the end of all future rebirths. Now, that may not sound like a wonderful thing to try to attain. Well, Kusla, are you telling us that the goal of this path is to not exist anymore? And I'm saying absolutely not. What I'm saying, the goal of this path is to exist without being born. If we can exist without being born, we'll never get old. We'll never get sick and we'll never die. How cool is that? And that's exactly what the Buddha did. He lives today right now. Could be right here with us. He could be sitting on my shoulder. I don't know. But he exists today not because of birth. He exists today because of his nirvana. And every arhant, every monk and nun, man and woman who has achieved nirvana now exists because of their nirvana, not because of birth. They never have to go to this rounds of births and deaths. This world we live in is called samsara. Everything in this world was created. There's not one thing in this world that wasn't created. Our sense doors can only come in contact with things that were created. That's why it's really hard for us to understand what it means to exist without being born. Now, as a Buddhist, we don't talk about who created it. There are Buddhists who believe that God created the world. There are Buddhists who believe in maybe the Big Bang Theory or the String Theory or evolution. And for a Buddhist, that's fine. No problem with that. And there are some Buddhists that think the flying spaghetti monster was the cause of our creation. I'm one of those. Great website, too. You can get a t-shirt there. So, for a Buddhist, it's not why we're here. For a Buddhist, it's, well, what are you going to do now that you are here? Don't worry about the beginning. They've been thinking about that since man could think, since woman could think. They've been trying to figure out why we're here. They haven't, still haven't come up with a satisfactory answer. You could spend your whole life trying to figure that out and miss the opportunity to achieve nirvana. Most cool. So, he laid out in his four truths the path he took to get to nirvana. And that is the Noble Eightfold Path. 
That is the heart of the matter. That's what we're going to be studying now for the next four weeks, the Noble Eightfold Path. What is the Noble Eightfold Path? It is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Those eight path factors lead to our liberation, our freedom, our nirvana, the end of our karma. Wow. So, we can take those eight path factors... And we can put them into three categories. We can put them into personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. In the first category of personal discipline, we have three path factors. They are right speech, right action, right livelihood. Now, just to give you a thumbnail sketch of what that means. Right speech. The Buddha said there are four kinds of speech that always increase suffering. They are false, malicious, Harsh and gossip or idle chatter. Those four kinds of speech always increase suffering. Those are unskillful speeches. Unskillful kinds of speech. Making up new words as I'm talking. Right action. The Buddha said there are three kinds of action that always increase suffering. They are killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. Those kinds of action always increase suffering. Then he went on to say, there are certain kinds of livelihood that increase suffering and certain kinds of livelihood that decrease suffering. So if you're a Buddhist, if you're on the path to freedom and liberation, if you want to end your suffering, find a a form of employment that allows you to support yourself but doesn't increase the suffering in the world. That's where a Buddhist starts. That's where the path starts. The path starts by looking at what you say and what you do. That's it. Now, that's two of the three aspects of karma. So let me talk a little bit about karma real quick here so we can put this all into the proper context. Has anybody ever seen that new TV show called My Name is Earl? It's in the second season. Well, that show is all about karma. In the first episode, it said Earl was watching Carson Daly. And Carson Daly said his life was so good because he had good karma. And Earl looked at his life and said, my life is so bad because I got bad karma. So I'm going to change my karma. And he got one of those yellow legal notebooks and he wrote down all the people he had been unkind and unskillful with and to. And in each episode of this TV show, he goes back and writes the wrongs of his past unskillful karma. And that is on American TV. How cool is that? So karma is everything we think, everything we say, everything we do. That is karma. The consequences, according to early Buddhism, the Theravada tradition, that's called vipaka. So we have cause and consequence, karma, vipaka. Karma plays a very important part in Buddhism. Why? Because we don't have justice in Buddhism. Everybody is so into justice. And they all want it, don't they? We killed Saddam Hussein. We got justice. Well, in Buddhism, that's not justice. That's killing. So what do we have instead of justice in Buddhism? We have karma, cause and consequence. Our actions, our speech... Our intentions manifest in the world, and those consequences will come back to bite us if we're unskillful. 
if we're skillful, those consequences will allow us to have a pleasant life. So all we have to do is wait for the karma to manifest in vipaka, and we don't need to kill anybody. We don't need to hate anybody. We can just let their karma take care of them. And we can go on to the next thing. I sort of like that idea. One of the reasons we don't have karma is because we lack a divine lawgiver to define for us what is right and wrong. We don't have ten commandments. We have five precepts. We don't have anyone we can petition to forgive us. We can't find redemption in Buddhism. We find that karma has no eyes to see us with and no ears to hear us with and we have to accept responsibility for what we think, what we say, and what we do. And if you're having a bad day, it's probably because of you. Not your boss or the person that cuts you off or your family members. It's probably has a lot to do with you. Now that takes a long time to accept. Because you have to look in the mirror and you've got to be honest with yourself and say, why? Why is it happening this way? Is it my karma? Well, karma has a big part to play in that. And if that's the case, I'll give you a, a real example. When I was in juvenile hall, there was this wonderful woman named Christine. She was a, a small Vietnamese woman. And she was so afraid to go to juvenile hall with me because she was small. And she envisioned all the guys in juvenile hall to be huge with tattoos and at any moment could kill her. So she said, I want to go, but I can't. I just have too much fear. And it wasn't but two weeks later, she called me up and said, Kusala, I'm going this week with you to juvenile hall. I'm bringing some mangoes with me and we'll do eating meditation in juvenile hall. I said, oh, thanks, Christine. That is so cool. But, but why the change of heart? Why do you want to go now? She said, well, somebody broke into my law offices and they rifled through the drawers and they took a computer and, and she realized something was wrong with her karma. And now she needed to change that. She needed to do something good to get her karma back on track. And you know what that says to me? She refused to be a victim. She was proactive in her response to that guy breaking into her law office. She said, okay, i got to do something positive now. I gotta change my life. Something's wrong. How cool is that? You know? So karma is not a sentence. It doesn't it's not written in stone. We can change our karma right now in what in how we think, what we say, and what we do. We don't have to be victims. It's empowering. But now let me digress just a smidge and talk about the tsunami. I heard a famous Buddhist scholar say the tsunami was caused by karma. It was those people's karma. That's why so many died. That's why so many lost their houses. I heard a Christian minister say it was their sin. And I am just cringing. It's such a simple explanation for such a complicated act. Tsunami. Well, what would a Buddhist say if they knew about the five niyamas, the five causes of why things happen? They would say this. There is never one thing behind something happening. 
We are not monotheistic. One seems to be the ultimate number. One seems to be the best number. In my time, one was the loneliest number. It's not all about one. And now they call these times postmodern. They're deconstructing the one, trying to find out what makes up the one. Okay? Well, in Buddhism, we would say the five reasons why stuff happens are natural events like earthquakes, plates moving, water shifts, waves hit the shore. There are sunspots. There is gravity. There's all sorts of natural reasons why stuff happens. Number one. Number two, why stuff happens. Genes and chromosomes, biology, has a lot to do with why stuff happens. Has a lot to do with why stuff happens to us. Number three, karma, the ethical component. If we're skillful, good things happen. If we're unskillful, uncomfortable things happen. For karma is a very important part of why things happen, but it's not the only part. Fourth, it is dharma. It is your religious practice. The religious practice you have influences everything that happens to you and may influence what happens to others as well. Finally, the fifth reason why stuff happens is mind. The Buddha said our mind leads our speech and action into the world. Our mind creates our reality. This whole world exists in this fathom long body. Our world is not out there. Our world is in here. It's being created moment by moment. What we see out there is form and shape and movement, sound. But that ego, that sense of self is creating our world moment by moment, according to Buddhism. So mind has a lot to do with what things, what happens and how we perceive it and how we discern it. Okay, those are the five reasons, according to early Buddhism, why things happen. We can never, ever break it down to one thing. Buddhism is polytheistic. We have a hierarchy of gods in Buddhism. And this might be a good time to talk about God. Are Buddhists atheists? Are Buddhists atheists? Absolutely not. The Buddha himself believed in the gods of India. He knew them to be true. Okay. So what does that make a Buddhist then? We are non-theistic. I know Buddhists who believe in God. There's nothing in Buddhism that would bring you to that conclusion, but they believe in God anyway. So it is okay for a Buddhist to believe in God. I have met some Buddhists who don't believe in God. They may have issues there. But there's nothing in Buddhism that says God doesn't exist. And then I've met a whole lot of Buddhists that just don't know. That probably is because of Buddhism. Because we don't talk about God. And why don't we talk about God? Because it seems, and I'm going to speak clearly on this, hopefully, it seems that God or gods can't end suffering. I imagine the Buddha 2,500 years ago on a full moon night petitioning the gods of India to step forward and end human suffering. He had seen old age, he had seen sickness, he had seen death. 
and they could do everything else, why couldn't they end human suffering? And I imagine he petitioned them, please step forward. I've seen it. It is true. Can't you help? Can't you end human suffering? And not one of the gods in India stepped forward and said, I'll do it for you. He took it upon himself. He found the cause. He found the cure. And to each and every Buddhist in the world, he handed out the prescription to end suffering. So, that's how I look at it. God does a whole lot of stuff, but doesn't seem to end human suffering. For whatever reason. There's a Catholic priest friend of mine. I said to him, do you have suffering in Catholicism? He said, oh yes. He said, in fact, I don't think we could have Catholicism without suffering. And, and to be frank, I was a bit surprised. And then my mind started to work, and I said to him, you know what we're trying to do as Buddhists? We're trying to end suffering. If we succeed, does that mean we're going to end Catholicism too? He said, absolutely not. I said, okay, I feel better about it now. But people look at suffering as almost being beneficial. Think how much you learn when you suffer. Think how strong you become. I know. A Buddhist doesn't go there. Suffering is unsatisfactory. Suffering is unsatisfactory. Suffering is optional. Pain isn't. Suffering is optional. Pain isn't. In Glendale, California, seventh grade class, little Esmeralda, after a presentation I gave, raised her hand and said, Reverend Kusla, I now understand the difference between pain and suffering. Suffering is when you don't want to have the pain. She was in seventh grade. Buddhism is about coming to a place of profound acceptance with the way things are. Not needing them to be any different than they are. Not wanting them to be any different than they are. Seeing the perfection in every moment. Our life is perfect just the way it is. Now, I wake up in the morning and I'm going, if this is perfection, what the hell's imperfection? <laughs> but I can't see it because I am deluded, I am ignorant. I have lust, I have greed, I have hatred. I can't see the perfection in my life. can't see the perfection in your life. But Buddhism allows us to see that this life is just the way it's supposed to be. Wow. That's a lot to swallow. This is the way it's supposed to be. Hundreds, if not millions of people dying every day because of starvation. They don't have homes to live in, shelter, medical supplies. That's the way it's supposed to be. Oh, man. I guess this is ultimately unsatisfactory, isn't it? I guess this world is a really difficult place to live. I was invited to a peace conference. And everybody wanted to be warm and cozy. Oh, yeah, we can have peace in this world. This world's a great place. We can make it. We can just love everybody. And I got up and I said, there's absolutely no way this world will ever be peaceful. And everybody went, oh my gosh, who invited him? I said, have you ever thought about Mother Nature? 
Have you ever seen the Wizard of Oz? What do you see? You see the lions and the tigers and the bears just waiting to eat you. Santa Monica Mountains, poison snakes, poison ivy, poison oak. I don't know what they look like. I sit or step in the wrong place. I'm scratching for weeks. This is a wonderful place to live. If I don't put enough food away for the winter, in the old days anyway, I starve to death. Isn't that just amazing? That this world of ours doesn't care at all about us. It is totally indifferent to whether we live or die. It's up to us. And that's why it's really good to have an ego, a self, self-awareness, discernment, because we have to survive. So, having said all of that, would a Buddhist go out and try to make the world a better place? Yes, they would. And why? Because it's about making the present moment a better place to live, not making the future a better place to live. According to Buddhism, we don't have a future. We don't have a past. We just have this ever-changing present moment that we live in. All those thoughts of when we're young and strong and handsome are just the ghosts of a past life in this very lifetime. Sometimes I do memorial services for my past lives. When I was 16 and I was a big jerk and it still bothers me because I was such a jerk, I just I do memorial service for that 16-year-old boy who did the best he could at that time and now he's dead, but because he lived, I'm here today. There is a causal connection, but I'm not him. He's not me. Yeah, it's this present moment. Time is what we use to measure the ever-changing flux and change within the present moment. Time doesn't exist. When we start getting into meditation, you can sit for 20 minutes. It could seem like three hours, or it could seem like five. What is time? You know? So we don't turn away from the world. We just realize what we're working with. We're doomed to failure. We're never going to change the world and make it a beautiful place. We can make bad better, though. We can perhaps house a person or feed a person and reduce their suffering. But this sort of utopia idea of, oh, if we all work together, we can change the world and have it a beautiful place to live, a Buddhist wouldn't go there. A Buddhist would see how difficult it is. And that's why they're out there working hard, not to make it better, but to reduce the suffering. I had to think about that myself because I do a lot of community service work. And, and somebody asked me, well, why do you do so much? You know, I mean, you, the way you talk, you wouldn't think you'd do any, they said to me. And I, and I had to think about it, and it didn't come to me for a couple of days, but the only reason I'm out there so much and doing so much volunteer work is because my job is to help reduce suffering. My job is not to make the world better. I'll leave that up to you. So if somebody's suffering, I got something to say. If somebody's happy, I got to go. I've done a couple weddings. I don't say anything except the service. Because everybody's so happy and so joyful and the future looks so good, I'm just going to sit and eat the cake. I got nothing to say about it. You know? So it's interesting, this Buddhist perspective, how it's sort of 
changes when you do the Buddhist practice, when you start to see some of the realities of the world, some of the realities of your life in the world. And that's why earlier I said, when I came to Buddhism, my life was okay. I thought it was fine. And it was only later that I discovered how unsatisfactory my life was. I was in denial. I was deluded. I was ignorant. I had no clue until I started to look, until my awareness started to increase and grow. And then I started to see more clearly how I could change myself and perhaps be an example for others to change themselves. But I realized early on that I couldn't change anybody. I couldn't make anybody enlightened. You know? And I think the Buddha saw that too. The Buddha never made one person enlightened. He just told them what he did in every talk he gave. He gave examples of his life and what his practice was and how he achieved the goal. And now, to each and every one of us, those who decide to go on the path, how do we do it in our life? Because we're all different. We all have different karma. We've all had different experiences. We're all starting from a different place. How do we do it? I had a, a Christian ask me just the other day, do you guys look at it like, you know, the Buddha was like the shepherd and you guys are the flock? You know? And I said, no, no. No, we're sort of like cats, us Buddhists, you know? We practice alone together. We practice alone together. And, and it's, it sounds, perhaps, at first, like, well, that's not much fun. Or don't you feel a little, you know, lonely out there practicing alone together? But, you know, uh, I guess if you want to be free, you can't be in a flock. You can't have a shepherd. you got to have, like, this raft that we're on. One of the similes that the Buddha used over and over again. From one shore to the next, we take this raft, this raft of Buddhism, and it takes us to the other shore, and now we're enlightened, and do we still carry the raft with us? No, we leave it behind. We're no longer a Buddhist anymore. We've gone beyond being a Buddhist. One of the only religions I know that we're trying to get not be a Buddhist, trying to get past it. It has a function, and then it serves its function, and you wish it well. Maybe give it to someone else. Let them use the raft for a while. Any questions so far? Have I triggered any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading the paper. Good. Hearing what? Yeah, well, that, that actually, that's the website I put together and uh, for the Monks in the West Conference. So that, so that paper that's there is by a Catholic. Yes. Oh, I see. Yeah. On why Catholics are celibate. Oh, but what I mean is you, you have, gave, have a website. I have a website. But you haven't given us that information. I'm going to give it to you uh, just in a few minutes. Okay. You and haven't given us your name either. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give that to you too. It's Kusla. Kusla Bhikshu. Kusla. Kusla. Kusala. Uh-huh. Perfect. Kusala. Kusala. And we know what that means? That means skillful. Skillful. And I was given that name because I wasn't. <laughs> My teacher said, anytime somebody calls you Kusala, I want you to remember what direction you need to go in. <laughs> <laughs> so... A, those Buddhists are rascals, aren't they? You know, they build you up and then they take you down. 
But yes, I, and, and I'm going to put together that page for us too with suggested readings and free downloads and the audio of this class, you'll be able to download that too. Because I find when I listen to some of my presentations, there is a whole lot of stuff. And even if you're the best listener, by the time you get home tonight, you're going to be thinking, well, gosh, he really said something profound, but I can't remember what it is. That's how I feel about it, too. I must have said something profound, but I don't know what it is. So I find the audio works really well for that. And it gives you a chance to listen to the presentation in a different context as well, rather than the classroom in, in your, where you're comfortable. So I'm going to give you all of that. Now, now have, have I changed any of your ideas about Buddhism in this, in this short presentation I've given tonight? Did you come with some preconceived notions of what it was all about? And Am I an iconoclast? Did I break those in a million pieces for you? Or am I, am I sort of... Um, Am I backing you up? Am I supporting you in what you thought Buddhism was going to be? For me, um, uh, I was looking at something um, in um, in right thinking. In okay. Thinking. Yeah. And how do I approach that level of living so that my mind, I don't know how to find the words to put it in, okay. but my mind takes honesty and and therefore I can be I can have an attitude of honesty an, an attitude of truth so that the dishonesty and all of the little uh, nuances that I do that are part of being courteous and friendly that aren't true the omissions the commissions how do I how do I be fully? Truthful, as fully truthful as I can be, and and somehow when I looked at that within Buddhism, um, I thought that kind of mindfulness, uh, developing it, so that in my interaction with myself, my interaction with other people, that I may have the kind of honesty that will not be hurtful. Mm-hmm that will be uh, helpful, mm-hmm. that will be... Mm, we have something in Quaker called integrity, mm-hmm. and, and that will be that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was one way of helping me to get a, a bigger mindset so that the little things don't override this piece of integrity, okay. uh, this mindfulness of, of truth. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know how to put it, yeah. but, but I see that first with mind, I see that with action, and, um, and I want to go there. Okay. And, um, and, and that's, I know that's difficult to go there, yeah. but I, I think I can inch my way there. Mm-hmm. I can learn something mm-hmm. about me yeah. that will make me inch over differently yeah. to truth. Good. There's something about being authentic. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a part of us that is authentic. It's, it's, the, it's the us. It's the us that, that, that doesn't have lust but has love. It's, it's the us that doesn't have greed but has generosity. And it's the us that doesn't have the anger and hatred. It has the love and compassion. And, and that's there. That's under all the stuff. And, 
and when I studied Buddhism, the first thing I saw was suffering, suffering, suffering. I'm going, wow, pessimistic. Then I said, ah, realistic. And then I said, optimistic. Because what Buddhism says is underneath all that greed, hatred, delusion, and lust is perfection. And Buddhism is a path of renunciation. You don't get anything in Buddhism. You get rid of the stuff that prevents you from being perfect. And I said to myself, that is one of the most positive messages I've ever heard. I'm already perfect. I don't need to do anything else other than get rid of the stuff that prevents my perfection. And the Buddhist path is all about that. Becoming authentic, true, and free. Most cool. But, again, if we read the sutras, we find the Buddha lived at least 550 lifetimes inching by inching his way towards nirvana. So we may not get it in this lifetime, but we will be better for it. And people around us will be better for it as well. And that's sort of what I like about Buddhism. I was asked about generosity in Buddhism, and they and from a student at Chadwick High School in Palos Verdes. And I said, well, you know, when I practice generosity, what I do sometimes is leave money behind in the changer. If there's a quarter that drops or a nickel that drops, I'll just leave it and walk away. And that's how I practice generosity. Or I'll just give somebody a dollar and, and, and just walk away. And she said to me, but aren't you concerned about what they do with it? Don't you want them to buy food and not alcohol with it? Don't you have some conditions on your generosity? And I said, no, because I'm not doing it for them. And she, you mean you're not trying to help those people? Absolutely not. I'm trying to get rid of my greed. And the best way to get rid of my greed is to practice generosity. And she just couldn't see that. And then I said to her, but you know, the ultimate reality in Buddhism is this that we are all interconnected, we are all interdependent. So I might think I'm doing it for me, but the person I'm giving it the money to is part of me as well. I just can't see it yet because I have too much ignorance and delusion. Some people start the other way. Some people try to change other people first and then get back to themselves. So I was more realistic. I said to myself, I've got all these issues. One of them is greed. And the best way to get rid of that is to practice generosity, according to Buddhism. So it starts out being selfish, ends up being selfless. Most cool. Paradoxical, yes. Do you know? Now, it's 9.30. Well, that's it. That was... Class 1, Part 2 of a 10-part series of talks I gave at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 2007. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info, K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. If you'd like to download some free e-books on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts, talks I've given, you can visit dharmatalks.info, that's dharmatalks.info, 
or iTunes, Urban Dharma. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>